Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back everyone. I'm joined today by the beautiful Elise who is here to share her journey with postpartum depression and anxiety and rage with her toddler and I'm not sure if it was the same experience but she's also had twins. So (laughs) big story and I'm really really looking forward to holding that space for Elise today. So thank you so much for joining us. Did you want to say hi, introduce yourself? Um, Well first off thanks for having me and it's so good to finally have a chat with you. I've been following your page pretty much since you started it so it's really lovely to get on and have a chat with you and share my experience. I just think it's such a vulnerable space to be in when you're in the middle of it so it's very important what you're doing so thank you. So um, my name's Elise. I am an intensive care nurse. Yeah yeah and I'm married to Bowden and we had our first son at the end of 2019 and he's Patrick. He's now four years old and then in September in 21 I had the twins Madeline and Arthur. So it's um, been a jam-packed four years and then with COVID and everything else it's mm. been a um, bit of a interesting sort of postpartum journey and it's yeah definitely been eye-opening that's for sure. Definitely and probably I'm going to say catalyst Um, one of the biggest catalysts to your experience was baby Patrick having lost a significant amount of body weight and then a diagnosis of IGT so for those listening Mm -hmm. insufficient glandular tissue or breast hyperplasia and you wrote here which it pulled at my heartstrings you said my world fell apart And I don't know if that's where you wanted to start your journey today. Yeah, so pretty much I was very, very lucky. I had a very smooth pregnancy and had a really lovely labour and birth. So from that point of view, I'm terribly, terribly fortunate and I know that. And so I thought here I was going to get away scot-free pretty much. (laughs) And When you, you know, you do your breastfeeding classes and you go to the hospital and they tell you that everyone can breastfeed and your body produces enough milk and no one had ever pieced together that my history of PCOS, my minimal breast changes throughout my pregnancy would lead to a diagnosis of IGT for me. And we took Patrick home on day four postpartum. Um, the reason for the little bit of an extra hospital stay was that I ended up with a thrombus in one of my varicose veins. So I had a like another couple of nights stay at the hospital as well. So kind of the stress of all that and mm. then getting home and getting your midwife checked to come out and her one of her lines that she sort of said to me that has always stuck in my head was, are you feeding him? And I was like, what? Like, here I am. I'm like, you know, very organized, very kind of controlling anal retentive ICU nurse. And I'm like, I've got an alarm set 
for every three hours. Like I am feeding this child every three hours, like if not more, because this is what I was told to do. So this is what I'm going to do. And she's like, what's happening? Like, why has he dropped so much weight then if you're feeding every three hours? And started asking about my you know, medical history and we got on to the fact that I've got PCOS and she was asking about breast changes and things like that. And it was just very fortunate that she happened to be a lactation consultant as well. So she kind of had pieced together that it was highly likely that I had the IGT. And she's like, your poor little newborn is starving. And that's why he is staring off into space. Um, And that's why he's not sleeping. And that's why he's got that zoned look on his face. And I have lots of pictures of him as a newborn. And looking back, it's eye-opening to see that he was just lying there with his eyes open, staring off into space. Um, And to be told that your husband needs to run out now and get formula, sterilizers, bottles, it doesn't matter what type you can get, get whatever you can get your hands on and just do it and do it now and feed this poor baby because he'd lost over 10% of his body weight. And we were threatened with going into special care for Mm. um, monitoring and, you know, just to make sure that I was actually feeding him and that I wasn't neglecting my own baby, which I think was where her worry was stemming from. Yeah. And hearing those words and that sort of that picture of that I might not be able to breastfeed really just sort of broke me Um, and I felt like I had been lied to which is a very odd thing because I don't think anyone lied to me but just when you feel like you've been told one thing and then your world comes crashing down and all of a sudden the image you have of your postpartum of, you know, breastfeeding and, you know, being able to, you know, chuck some nappies in a bag and go for a walk and, you know, you don't have to worry about bottles and sterilising and formula and, you know, all your friends have breastfed till over a year and everyone can do it and why can't I do it and I'm broken and my body's broken and it just... I think I cried, I reckon, for a good six or eight weeks of my postpartum journey there. And we spent a lot of time going to breastfeeding clinics and doing everything we could to try and establish breastfeeding for me, taking, you know, prescription medication for it, doing triple feeding. I was pumping maybe six hours a day or something like that, something ridiculous amount of hours and getting maybe 100 mils of breast milk combined it was nothing it was very pointless it felt very pointless even though I don't think it was but you know just that pressure to succeed and just yeah nothing worked and props to anyone that can do supply line feeding because it is difficult and it just didn't work for us so yeah at about I think it was six weeks or eight weeks postpartum I decided to give that up and I think saying to my husband that I couldn't do it anymore was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to sort of come to terms with or tell someone and the fact that no one sort of gave me permission to give up I just felt like 
everyone was like, no, you can do it. It's fine. Just keep doing it. You know, just keep kind of pushing yourself to the absolute brink to try and get 100 mils of breast milk into this baby a day, which wasn't even a full bottle. Mm. Like, it wasn't even a full one of his feeds of, you know, six or eight feeds a day. But, yeah, so that was um, – that was an interesting, interesting start to my motherhood journey. For sure. I can only imagine. And looking back on my own journey, my decision not to breastfeed, I'm going to say broke me, but I had the luxury of choice. I had yeah. the choice. I could breastfeed and I chose not to. I still grieved that decision, yeah. but I had the choice. You didn't have a choice really. That choice was taken away from you. It's just purely how your body is, the IGT, PCOS, all of that. And that I can hear in your voice that pain because you don't have that choice. It's not a choice that you've actively made. It's a, I'm resigning myself to this situation. Yeah. And the fact that my husband was going back to work and I couldn't triple feed solo. I just, I couldn't manage it. I felt like I wasn't bonding with my baby, I felt like I was just there as a milk machine almost, just try and get any tiny drop I could out of myself and it just was not it was not working. And it was yeah, it was it was hard. It was yeah. Of course. And I don't think people understand and mate this is maybe just me generalizing, but when you do have to pump so much you're not holding your baby really while you're pumping. No. You've got to put them down and then, oh, but in, in the middle of all that, you've got to sterilise bottles. You've got to feed them formula or maybe you need to change their nappy and you can't pump because you need to be attached to a wall or, hey, I need to recharge my pump or whatever it is. Like the the time that it actually takes, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> the one thing I figured out I could do while pumping was wash up the bottles. So I would stand at the kitchen sink and my husband got to have all these beautiful cuddles with Patrick and they got to bond and I could see them bonding and here I am crying into the sink of bottles while I'm literally got a pump like on my chest and I'm like well this is this is great isn't it it's not how it was meant to be no it really isn't how it was meant to be or how I envisaged it I guess or what I got told it would be like either Mm. So that was at around eight weeks postpartum. Mm. It wasn't until 10 months postpartum that you'd been struggling for a really long time, but no one actually picked up on this until you'd done a residential stay for your Patrick's sleep. That's eight months. Yes. It was a big eight months too, because we had the bushfires at the end of 2019. Yeah. So we spent a lot of that time indoors anyway because Mm. of you know the risk to newborns so that all went along and then we got to the beginning of 2020 and we started going out and I started to have a mother's group and we would do little play dates here and there and then COVID hit and so then we all went into lockdowns and Patrick would have been about six months old at the time when we went into lockdowns so I think the whole lockdown situation, the fact that he wasn't sleeping well, he's never been a good eater or feeder, and I still to this day blame myself for that, um, that I think I'm the root cause of all his feeding issues, which I probably know in my head that it's not, but 
that's how I feel and that yeah. mother guilt is just it, it plagues you and yeah so spending that time basically trapped in an apartment with my husband and my son and my dog just felt like there was just no way out and I think I had lots of thoughts of running away um I had a plan that I was going to grab my passport and my university transcript and I was going to get on a plane and for some reason I wanted to go to Perth and just in my head I'll be okay once I get to Perth and I just was transfixed on this idea of escape but I couldn't go anywhere because of lockdowns. Um, so it was just a good sort of three or four months of being stuck in that cycle of I need to get out, I can't get out, I need to get out, I can't mm. get out, and just having a screaming child that did not sleep, did not eat, and we're like pushing him to eat and gain weight and, yeah, it just was, it was a nightmare. Um, yeah. We did a like day stay at Tresillion, I think when he was six months old. And that sort of helped with his sleep a bit, but I don't think I was there for long enough for them to realise just how bad I was. Um, and because my husband was not a full essential worker, but he had to go in to do some practical stuff at his job. So there were days that he wasn't there and that I was the sole sort of carer for this baby without anyone else with me and just dealing with his screaming for hours and hours and hours and I would snap and I would definitely lose my cool and have to put him down and walk out of the room and I think that's sort of where my postpartum rage developed as well and the fact that when you have these moments of like this intense rage it's almost like you can't see what you're doing you kind of the only the only kind of way I can describe it really is a Jekyll and Hyde situation and that something in you just snaps and all of a sudden you're not you anymore and I would literally put this baby down and walk out into the lounge room and I would have to like throw a cushion against the wall or I'd scream into a cushion or I'd like just stomp around out in the lounge room and just be like I can't do this I need to get out of this house and I can't and meanwhile in the bedroom Patrick is still screaming because he just doesn't want to sleep and he's never slept ever to this day. Um. But yeah I mean it's that whole as you're saying, you're wanting to escape, but you can't escape. I'm I'm looking at it as that fight or flight, right? You want to flight, yeah. you can't flight. So your only option is fight. Yeah. Yeah. This just absolute adrenaline kind of rush just, yeah. Yeah, escapes your body. And I knew like the, the pivotal moment for me, it, it's really weird because, you know, having Patrick screaming in the bedroom, but the pivotal moment for me is when, my dog Pepper like put her little front paws up on my knee and like looked up at me and I just screamed at her like 
off me. And she jumped down and cowered. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Like, who am I? Like, this is this is not this is not me. This is not the person I want to be. I don't throw things. I don't, you know, punch cushions. I don't scream profanities into cushions. Like, who is this woman and what's she done with me? And how do I get my old self back? And then after you have that snap and you calm down, you then get that shame spiral that goes with it. And you go back into your screaming child and you literally, you both just sit there and you cry. And I would just sit on the floor next to his cot and we'd literally just both cry and it was horrible. And it just, yeah, I, I still, I still don't know how we all got through it, but we did. And were you the one to pick up? hey, I need to, I think something's happening here. Or it wasn't until you were in that residential stay at 10 months that someone said, Elise, I really think you're struggling and you need some more support. To be honest, it was the nurses there yeah. that said you need to see someone. Um, I think by the time we got to Tresillion, I was at a point where anytime my husband was around, I was completely disassociated from Patrick I, overnight, he would cry and I would hear him and I would wake up and I could not move. Yeah. I didn't want to move. I just, I'd reached that point where I was like, I, I physically can't do this anymore. I just, I just couldn't bring myself to get up and deal with him anymore. And so it was the nurses who noticed that when you were there at the stay? Yeah, I pretty much cried the entire time we were there. Like from the moment we walked in the door, I just, anytime they asked me to do anything with him, with his sleeping, with his settling, I just cried. I would sit on the bed and I'd cry and they're like, you just really need to go and talk to our social worker. And then I got in to see her and she said, I really think you need to see the psychiatrist here and I think you need to see her now and how did that make you feel it it was actually a good thing I knew I needed help but I didn't want to say I needed help I I, I don't know where that's come from because I've had therapy in the past and I've dealt with you know depression and anxiety and PTSD you know from when I was a teenager pretty much and I just don't know why it was different this time for me, but it was very different. And I don't know if it was because of the COVID lockdowns and being unable to get anywhere, not being able to have someone come to my house and mind Patrick so I could go to therapy and see someone and talk to someone about it. But it just, it all felt like it was too hard until someone actually said, no, it's not too hard and we can do this and we can do this right now for you. It's reminding me of at the start of your story when you said no one gave you that permission to stop breastfeeding. Mm. You were waiting again for permission (laughs) to get help. And I'm glad that someone stepped up and gave you that permission. Because I don't know where we'd be if it didn't happen. Yeah. I don't think I could have kept going the way that I was going 
without help. Um, So the psychiatrist there, like we had a few sessions, but the main thing she did was put me on an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, um, which is something I, like when I had depression and anxiety as a teenager, it was something I never really ever wanted to do. I was quite happy to put my like resources and time and effort into doing like the cognitive behavioral therapy and that's great when you're a teenager and you've got high school and you've got you know three sessions a week for an hour you know you've got time and space I've got time and space to do therapy and I've got time and space to you know work on my cognitive behavioral techniques and it's great and I still use these techniques to this day and I just didn't have the time or the headspace to do that again. And I thought, I am going to do it and I'm going to start medication. And it was, I know that they they don't work. Like, it's not like, you know, you take a blood pressure medication and your blood pressure drops. They do take, you know, a week or two to kick in. But I felt so much better even after a couple of days of taking them. And I don't know if it was the placebo effect or if they had actually started working very quickly, but it just felt so much, like it felt so much better. I felt like I was more in control of my emotions and more in control of my rage and that I could have Patrick scream and cry and carry on and I could comfort him. And I didn't feel like my brain was on fire, like I needed to escape. Mm. Um, So for me personally, the medication really helped. And once I was able to get a little bit in more control of my emotions and was able to sort of come down off the precipice, I could then start doing like some of the cognitive behavioural therapies that I had, you know, the techniques that I had learnt yeah in my teenage years in my early 20s to sort of help manage the rest of my depression and anxiety yeah for me at that time the medication was definitely a godsend yeah and I mean obviously I had a very similar experience I was stubborn I will rely on therapy I'll use skills I'll put in the work whatever that means whatever that means whatever that means then having to resign myself to the fact that I need medication, that was hard. But God, I'm glad I did it. Yes, yeah, how am I? Yes, medication isn't the cure, but it is. A it helps. It, it helps. is a tool and it helps. And where would we be, you and I, for example, if yeah. it wasn't for that bringing us off the edge so mm. that we could come to a more level state where our other skills can kick in? Exactly, yeah. So, I completely resonate and I'm so glad that you had, first of all, that Tresillian, and I didn't know this, that they had a social worker and a psychiatrist that they could, like, that is phenomenal. I know. I had no idea either. I thought it was all just about sleep. Yeah. It's not. It's, it was honestly such a good stay and a good service. Like I stayed at the one at Canterbury in Sydney and yeah, they were just phenomenal there. And I mean, like sleep training, was never something we thought we would do but just each baby is different as they tell Absolutely. you and uh Patrick definitely needed a little bit of extra 
push and support to sleep. Because yeah. if we had let him, he would probably still be awake to this day and never <laughs> sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's good that you went to a service for the sleep, but that they actually picked yes. up on not just him. It's not just about him. They looked at you. Yeah. Like that's that makes, yeah. if I can say it without saying I'm too corny, it makes my heart happy. Yeah, it was really such a, yeah, such a great service to be linked to. And they even had like support groups for the dads there and support groups for the mums there. So, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, come in and patch your baby for five minutes and then shush for five minutes and then repeat, you know, until they finally. Yeah. <laughs> And, okay, so you've seen the psychiatrist, you've been prescribed medication. What's happened in the meantime? Because obviously you then went back for, I'm going to say baby number two, but it was really baby number two and three. Two and three, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what helped you in that time? Um, To be honest, like Patrick turned one and like a switch flipped in him. All of a sudden he was like, oh, I now know how to sleep. This is great. I'll go to bed at seven o'clock and I'll wake up at 6.30 and, oh, yeah, I'll do that nap for you in the middle of the day. And you want me to eat some food? I can do that too, mum. It's great. And it just, I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Child, what have you done for Patrick? Like, okay, I'm rolling with it. But, yeah, sure, this is good. Um, And also a big thing for me was going back to work. Mm. Um. Believe it or not, in the middle of a pandemic, um, I went back to work and I felt like I had regained a huge part of myself by going yeah. back to work and kind of relinquishing that control with Patrick a bit as well. And I didn't think I would be a controlling parent, but here we are and there we are in the middle of a pandemic and I guess you just you do what you have to do to survive. And with him being not great with his sleeping and his routine, we were quite strict, like schedule sort of parents. So getting a nanny in and relinquishing that control, I think also sort of helped me a bit as well, just to sort of step back a bit and be like, he's going to survive. Yeah. Like, you know, even if he doesn't go to his nap at 12 o'clock, he will survive. And I'll survive. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also hoping you give yourself a bit of compassion here as well, because just going back to what the midwife home visit was and where she said, are you even feeding your child? And, you know, the fear of your being neglectful, I can only imagine how that would stay with you. Yes, you're being controlling. Let's use that in inverted commas. But I don't blame you. If that's how I started my motherhood journey, That those kind of comments and that, I don't know, maybe that belief in yourself that, oh my God, I'm a neglectful parent, I'm doing everything wrong. How much of an impact that will have on your sense of self and your mental health? Of course, you're going to be a bit more controlling. Yeah. And it really was like, I think from that moment on, I was like, right, I'm documenting everything. Yeah. Because if you don't document it in nursing, it didn't happen. So I bought an app. I bought one of those baby tracker app things and literally everything he did went into that app his feeds his wheeze his poops his sleep his awake times his activities you name it went in that app so yeah um I still have the app on my phone um and I think I could look back and tell you exactly what he was doing at what time of the day he was doing it yeah 
And I guess that's like your way of proving, yes, I am not neglecting my child. Yeah, if you want to know how many meals he had, that I am doing it and we were doing it. Yeah. And that I had set a timer for every three hours. And it was a hard time. It sounds so weird saying it, but it was a hard time stopping the documentation of Patrick. And I feel like it probably went on until after he was a year old. This app just, I kept putting in everything in the app. And I think Bowden even said, like, I think it might be time that we stop doing this. And I was like, are you sure though? But are you really sure? And he's like, no, I think it, I think it's time to let go. And then that coincided with, you know, going back to work. Back to work. Hiring the nanny. Yeah. And so baby number two and three have mm. come along. And st- I'm going to say statistically twins are harder on our mental health. Yeah, um, but I know. Yeah, I'm, yeah, in your experience, it was no, that first. That, it was the first that really. Yeah. It's. It it's so it's been sorry it's just been so vastly different the second time around and I have to laugh because on your submission form you know you wrote a bit about what happened with your son you've then ended it and again I'm laughing and it says a very long journey full stop have since had twins (laughs) oh my word and I just okay this poor woman but also. I, I can imagine, you know, not to minimise the experience with twins because, you know, that is hard and I can oh, only imagine how hard that would be, especially yeah. with a toddler. But yeah. it sounded like the biggest emotional and mental battles were in the, the first experience. First, yeah. It really was. Absolute chalk and cheese experience between both the pregnancies, both the births, both my postpartum periods. It it's just been, yeah, it's so, so weird how different it is. And just when you go in knowing what to expect and like, in all honesty, and I hate the term difficult baby. I know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know what he, you mean. He wasn't, he wasn't easy. He wasn't easy to feed. He wasn't easy to settle. There was a lot of purple crying. And then even after that, sort of fourth trimester sort of stuff there was you know ongoing sleeping and feeding issues yeah but with these two it just the pregnancy was hard physically Mm -hmm. hard like carrying two two babies two placentas two lots of fluid it was it was difficult I reckon I almost had my own gravitational pull I was that big (laughs) like I was it was it's a sight to behold a twin pregnant belly um, and again, very lucky to have an obstetrician who supported me in a beautiful, you know, I was induced, but a beautiful vaginal delivery of both of them and very lucky to have that initial sort of skin to skin with both of them. And my Arthur, who was born second, was born breech. So he did need a bit of like special care sort of support. Um, he came out like with a bit of fluid in his lungs. So he needed a little bit of resus and a bit of sort of like bagging to clear his airway and suctioning and stuff. And he was on CPAP, I think, for like half an hour, an hour in the delivery suite and then was moved to special care on oxygen. But even that, like, I guess with my nursing background and I kind of knew what was happening and they were very good at telling me what was going on. So I was very calm about all of that. And like he had a cry on him and, you know, he did sound gurgly, but, you know, he was making noise and he was very vocal 
Finneys protesting about everything being on to the point that they had to prone him so they had to put him on his tummy because he kept pulling everything off and pushing everything off so I was like okay so he's a little he's a little fighter so that's fine um, and like Bowden was updating me about his progress and I was so lucky to have Madeline on me pretty much the whole entire time that I was there and she was moved to special care in the evening just for blood sugar monitoring because I had gestational diabetes in both pregnancies um but yeah like these two came out and we knew straight away that I would do comfort feeds with breastfeeding so I was more than happy to attach them whenever they wanted to be attached but we knew that they would need to be bottle fed pretty much from the get-go and that their main source of nutrition would be bottles and I think just going in with that mindset and having an obstetrician who was like yep that's totally fine we know all about that all the midwives at the hospital knew my situation and they were more than happy to support me in that decision as well and it was such a big relief to be supported in that too yeah and I don't know if I'd had a singleton for my second pregnancy I would have been as supported in bottle feeding as I was with twins Mm. I, I don't know but yeah, it just, everyone was like, oh, yeah, twins. No, that's fine. You can bottle feed. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that's all I was going to anyway. So, yeah, at least that seemed to take the pressure off. And just being able to not spend, you know, six hours of my day on a pump and, like, props to anyone who does pump for that long, like, you are super women, superstars, mm. because I just, I couldn't do it. And I think when you're getting so little out. Yeah. But, yeah, very, very different the second time around. I mean, having said that, the like, you do feel like a drill sergeant when you've got twins. Again, you're very scheduled and you're very like, okay, feed this one, feed that one, burp this one, burp that one, change this one, change that one, settle this one, settle that one, feed again. <laughs> um, but, yeah, one thing that stuck in my mind was my mum going, is Madeline due for a feed now or is Arthur due for a feed now? I'm like, to be honest, I actually don't know. And she's like, don't you have that app thing? I'm like, I'm not even using the app this time. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. Just feed whoever's crying at time. <laughs> Whatever. I'm just, just feed them. They're fine. They'll be, they'll be fine. We'll, we'll sort it out again. We'll get back on track the next feed, I'm sure. I love that. So, like, yeah, it was just such a different experience just being so chill about the whole thing. Yeah. And, I mean, going into pregnancy and postpartum, were there things that you did this second time round to prepare or to ensure that you were supported? Yeah. So again, because 2021 was a lot of COVID lockdowns and stuff, I pretty much went to every scan and appointment solo, which my poor husband, like poor Bowden, was left out quite a lot Mm. in that respect. But my sister is a flight attendant, so she opted to work 2020 and the majority of 21 and opted to be stood down around my due date. So she joined our household and came and lived with us. So she was kind of like our live-in extra set of hands. Um, And she now has such a beautiful bond with Patrick and Madeline and Arthur, but was very, very hands-on with Patrick mainly, just so Bowden and I could deal with the twins and make sure Patrick then wasn't left out. Because, yeah, bringing home one baby is one thing for a two-year-old. But bringing home two babies is uh, yeah. one for a two-year-old. 
<laughs> I can imagine. And I love your sister already. I don't know who she is, but. Yeah, Caitlin, shout major, out. <laughs> yeah, major shout out to her. Yeah, she's a champion. So selfless. Yeah. And different to the first experience when it was COVID and you didn't have any support. Yeah. Although we did get like the first six months, but I think I was so controlling that people kind of just stepped away a bit. Like, oh, she doesn't need help. She doesn't want help. She's doing it all herself. So this time, though, anyone came into my house, it was pretty much like a football toss. Here's a baby. baby. Yep. Take a baby. Like, Do you want two? Just one? Okay, you take one. <laughs> it was pretty much like that, though, because as restrictions started easing up, they were only like one or two months old. So people started coming over and literally anyone that walked in the door got a baby. Here, here's a bottle. Sit down. Make yourself comfortable. I think you have to as well. Like, how else would you have survived? Yeah, it is next level. But also, I guess, knowing that everything is just a phase and knowing that the second time around, like the first time around, you kind of don't have that insight of how quickly they change and how quickly they do change. And it just, yeah, mind blowing. I'm glad that your second experience, albeit hard, I'm so glad that your mental health was supported and protected and validated, I should say, validated by your obstetrician, the midwives. That's Mm. phenomenal. And also like, there, there are lots of supports for twins and multiples parents out there. Um, Samba, Amber, I should say, Australian Multiple Births Association is an Australian-wide association and they have their like little local branches. So I am a member of Samba, Southern Sydney um, Multiple Births Association. So they link you with other mothers in your area who have had twins or multiples and it is amazing we have such an amazing group of mothers who just who just get it like the twin and the triplet factor they just they understand and it's just really nice being able to just jump on the chat and be like oh my god this happened to me today can you believe it or how many times a day have you been asked are they twins you know just little things like that but then also jumping on when all the twin mums who are like oh you know these singleton parents don't know anything and I'm like look I'm gonna keep it real for you because let me tell you Patrick almost broke me yeah like it really is dependent on the baby and if I had two Patricks as the twins I like it would have been a hard slog and it would have been you know probably back for another residential stay at Tresillian and back to the psychiatrist again and I just couldn't imagine having twins that you know are colicky or I know that's an outdated term but you know reflux or unsettled babies babies who fight sleep or you know those babies that just don't go with the flow and don't need the extra attention and support and like some of them do because we're all different we're all different people and babies are just little people and they are all different so just I really do think Patrick honestly prepared me for having twins and it was probably a reason I had Patrick first I mean he's a champion now like he's an absolute champion he's a spitfire but he's um yeah he's a quick kid first 12 months of his life were were next level. And if I can just ask, were you still on the medication throughout pregnancy and second postpartum? Okay. Yeah. So um, I think I initially started on Zoloft, but yeah, that was giving me night sweats. So then they changed me to acetalopram. So I was on that for my whole like conception, pregnancy, postpartum period and like went over like called mother safe about Mm -hmm. being on it 
with trying to conceive and, you know, spoke to my obstetrician about it and, you know, they were happy for me to continue on. Like I wasn't on a very big dose and they were like, look, your mental health is probably worth it. I think it's a category B, so it's not that it's dangerous, but it's just not tested because it's Mm. not, you know, ethical to test on pregnant women, that sort of thing. So, yeah, definitely on still on the medication now. So. Another journey that we've got to undertake, I guess, at some stage. If we have to go there. If we have to go there, yes. Yeah. If you could give some advice to a friend or even to yourself, back four-day postpartum, you've been diagnosed with IGT, what would you say to yourself or what do you wish had been said to you that might have just taken away some of that pain or that shame? Um, that it's it's not your fault that it's not your fault that your body's like this and that there's no shame in the fact that your body can't do this, this thing that we're told that we're supposed to be able to do, it's not your fault. And if you don't want to breastfeed and it's too hard for you to breastfeed and it's causing you too much emotional anguish and stress, don't do it go easy on yourself and don't put that pressure on yourself and I really wish someone had told me that and I felt like I had to and I had to keep trying like there was going to be some miracle cure for it but there wasn't and I think that that's important advice I I say it all the time but whatever decision you make as a mother I know that you were making it in the best interest of yourself your child and your mental health, like that is all that matters. You know, whether that is breastfeeding, for some women that's the right choice. For others, as much as we might want to, there are other things happening that make it unreasonable to continue trying. Yes, And any decision that you're making, I wish there was a bit more understanding that people are making these decisions. Yeah, it is the right decision for them however hard it is to make that decision and yeah as you said I wish there was more compassion around that yes but not just breastfeeding oh everything 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 in motherhood I just feel like it doesn't matter what you do you're judged either way yeah like you breastfeed but then you breastfeed for too long and you're judged for that like honestly it doesn't it doesn't matter what you do yeah there's no there's no winning yeah will always be upset by your decision and I hope that even if other people can't provide that validation or compassion that hopefully we can find it within ourselves to be gentle and kind to ourselves because we are not bad mothers we're not doing anything wrong we are making doing the best we can with what we've got exactly um thank you so so much for coming on and talking to me today I know that it's it's such a I'm not going to say controversial, but it's such a hard thing to talk about the decision not to breastfeed or in your case, not being able to breastfeed and having that decision taken away from you and the impacts that that has on mental health. Yes. And then feeling like you have to justify it to everyone and then explain your situation. And I'm sure people don't care about my boobs that much, (laughs) like that I would have a like, you know, good five minute conversation with you about my my breasts and why I couldn't breastfeed I honestly I think I went back to work and people knew about it and they're like well this is like a lot Elise and I'm like oh I'm sorry this is just how it's been like the last 14 months of me trying to justify 
these yeah. decisions to people. And it, yeah, it's just. So thank you for talking about that. You're right. We shouldn't have to justify it. And being open about the rage as well is another thing that yes. I think I can say a lot of mothers experience that. I know I was told before leaving the maternity hospital, if you feel angry, put the baby down and walk away. And walk away. It's such a, it that advice is so reinforced that you realise just how many yeah. women would have had how to many? go through it in yeah. order for that to be advice that is given. Put the baby down and walk away. Yeah. Yeah, and that I never, I was never told that, but luckily I, kind of instinctively knew put the baby down and walk away yeah. and that you'd have these flashes of you like hurling a baby at the wall and you'd be mm. like well time to put the baby down and walk away and yeah that's that's a very scary sort of flash it's that intrusive thought and they all suck they do they but do yes yeah again thank you for being open about that yeah and I still have my moments like I still get still get shouty. I am You're very human. I'm very outnumbered. <laughs> Gang up on me. <laughs> Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.